Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Part 3. The hour of noon, the midpoint of the day, is struck almost precisely at the midpoint of the novel by page count regardless of what edition you are using. Here is the quotation. It was precisely twelve o'clock, twelve by Big Ben, whose stroke was wafted over the northern part of London, blent with that of other clocks, mixed in a thin, ethereal way with the clouds and wisps of smoke, and died up there among the seagulls. Twelve o'clock struck as Clarissa Dalloway laid her green dress on her bed, and the Warren Smiths walked down Harley Street. Twelve was the hour of their appointment. Probably, Rezia thought, that was Sir William Bradshaw's house with a gray motor car in front of it. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Once again, we have the repetition of that phrase, the leaden circles dissolved in the air. I want to note that Harley Street has long been the street in London where the most prestigious physicians practiced. Noon is the hour of the Smith's appointment with this renowned specialist of the nerves, a psychiatrist as we would call him today, and the novel's narrator has a great deal to say about Sir William Bradshaw. I can't help wondering how much of this description might have been influenced by Virginia Woolf herself, who, as we know, had a number of mental breakdowns at various points in her life and probably had occasion to consult doctors such as Sir William. Sir William has many rich clients and is now rich and famous himself, though he was the son of a shopkeeper, so he has risen in the world. There are some allusions in this part of the novel to Eliot's The Wasteland, such as several references to a drowned sailor, which recalls Phlebas the Phoenician in Eliot's poem, and also references to The Immortal Ode, which probably refers to Keats's Ode on a Grecian Urn. Both of these allusions are made in relation to Septimus, who had himself been an aspiring poet before he was drowned, so to speak, in the trauma of the Great War. Sir William Bradshaw at least recognizes what Dr. Holmes does not, that there is indeed something wrong with Septimus. Bradshaw gets the original diagnosis almost word for word. Prescribed a little bromide? Said there was nothing the matter? Ah, yes, those general practitioners, thought Sir William. It took half his time to undo their blunders. Some were irreparable. Sir William Bradshaw proposes for Septimus a rest cure that would involve an extended period of rest, perhaps six months, with no stimulation at all. There is a wonderful passage and a repetition of a word that really reveals what the narrator thinks of Sir William Bradshaw. The word is proportion, and each time it is repeated, it is more charged with irony. When Rezia, distressed at the thought that her husband would be separated from her, asks the doctor if Septimus was mad, quote, Sir William said he never spoke of madness. He called it not having a sense of proportion. But her husband did not like doctors. He would refuse to go there. Shortly and kindly, Sir William explained to her the state of the case. 
He had threatened to kill himself. There was no alternative. It was a question of law. He would lie in bed in a beautiful house in the country. The word proportion recurs a few pages later in this memorable passage. To his patients he gave three quarters of an hour, and if in this exacting science, which has to do with what, after all, we know nothing about, the nervous system, the human brain, a doctor loses his sense of proportion, as a doctor he fails. Health we must have, and health is proportion. So that when a man comes into your room and says he is Christ, a common delusion, and has a message, as they mostly have, and threatens, as they often do, to kill himself, you invoke proportion. Order rest in bed, rest in solitude, silence and rest, rest without friends, without books, without messages, six months rest, until a man who went in weighing seven stone six comes out weighing twelve, end quote. Let me interrupt here to say that the word stone refers to a unit of weight in Britain that equaled 14 pounds. So when he mentions someone going to his rest cure weighing seven stone six and coming out 12 stone, that would be going from 104 pounds to about 168 pounds. Continuing, Proportion, divine proportion, Sir William's goddess, was acquired by Sir William walking hospitals, catching salmon, begetting one son in Harley Street by Lady Bradshaw, who caught salmon herself, and took photographs scarcely to be distinguished from the work of professionals. Worshipping proportion, Sir William not only prospered himself, but made England prosper, secluded her lunatics, forbade childbirth, penalized despair, made it impossible for the unfit to propagate their views until they, too, shared his sense of proportion, his if they were men, Lady Bradshaw's if they were women. She embroidered, knitted, spent four nights out of seven at home with her son, so that not only did his colleagues respect him, his subordinates fear him, but the friends and relations of his patients felt for him the keenest gratitude for insisting that these prophetic Christs and Christuses who prophesied the end of the world or the advent of God should drink milk in bed, as Sir William ordered. Sir William, with his thirty years' experience of these kinds of cases and his infallible instinct, this is madness, this sense, in fact, his sense of proportion, end quote. So proportion is the word most associated with Sir William Bradshaw, and Wolfe extends this association by linking it to another word. But proportion has a sister, less smiling, more formidable, a goddess even now engaged in the heat and sands of India, the mud and swamp of Africa, the purlieus of London, wherever in short the climate or the devil tempts men to fall from the true belief which is her own, is even now engaged in dashing down shrines, smashing idols, and setting up in their place her own stern countenance. Conversion is her name, and she feasts on the wills of the weakly, loving to impress, to impose, adoring her own features, stamped on the face of the populace. The connection between proportion and conversion is perhaps best represented by Lady Bradshaw, 
listen to this passage about her relationship to the good doctor. For example, Lady Bradshaw, 15 years ago she had gone under. It was nothing you could put your finger on. There had been no scene, no snap, only the slow, sinking, waterlogged of her will into his. Sweet was her smile, swift her submission. Dinner in Harley Street, numbering eight or nine courses, feeding ten or fifteen guests of the professional classes, was smooth and urbane. Only as the evening wore on, a very slight dullness, or uneasiness perhaps, a nervous twitch, fumble, stumble, and confusion indicated what it was really painful to believe, that the poor lady lied. Once, long ago, she had caught salmon freely. Now, quick to minister to the craving which lit her husband's eye so oilily for dominion, for power, she cramped, squeezed, pared, pruned, drew back, peeped through, so that without knowing precisely what made the evening disagreeable and caused this pressure on the top of the head, which might well be imputed to the professional conversation or the fatigue of a great doctor whose life, Lady Bradshaw said, is not his own but his patient's. Disagreeable it was, so that guests, when the clock struck ten, breathed in the air of Harley Street even with rapture, which relief, however, was denied to his patience. I think that this is one of the sharpest passages in the entire novel. Bradshaw's sense of proportion is a force that suffocates and overwhelms the wills of others and makes them entirely submit to his, as Lady Bradshaw did. And the part about the dinner party is brilliant in depicting the experience of an evening in the company of the Bradshaws as so oppressive that his guests escape into the open air with relief. And after all that build-up, Wolf delivers the punchline, which relief, however, was denied to his patience. So his poor patients have no escape from Sir William Bradshaw's suffocating sense of proportion. The narrator says, But Rezia Warren Smith cried, walking down Harley Street, that she did not like that man. So Rezia somehow picks up on this. There is something disagreeable about Bradshaw. Immediately following is a passage in which Wolfe invokes proportion by associating it with authority, Bradshaw's, but also the authority of official time. Shredding and slicing, dividing and subdividing, the clocks of Harley Street nibbled at the June day, counseled submission, upheld authority, and pointed out in chorus the supreme advantages of a sense of proportion until the mound of time was so far diminished that a commercial clock suspended above a shop in Oxford Street announced genially and fraternally, as if it were a pleasure to Messrs. Rigby and Lowndes, to give the information gratis that it was half-past one, end quote. So the clocks, as the instruments of time, exert the kind of authority over us, dividing subdividing, counseling submission, as does Sir William Bradshaw. After the encounter between the Smiths and Bradshaw, the scene shifts to a luncheon hosted by Lady Bruton 
that will be attended by Clarissa's husband, Richard, and Hugh Whitbread, among others. Hugh Whitbread is a wonderful name and reminiscent of white bread. What kind of person is Hugh? Well, he's a bureaucrat. We see Hugh several times from the point of view of Lady Bruton's secretary, Miss Brush, who considers him underbred. For one thing, he always inquires about Miss Brush's brother, but he gets his posting location wrong every time. Hugh would never lunch with Lady Bruton, whom he had known these 20 years, without bringing her in his outstretched hand a bunch of carnations and asking Miss Brush, Lady Bruton's secretary, after her brother in South Africa, which, for some reason, Miss Brush, deficient though she was in every attribute of female charm, so much resented that she said, thank you, he is doing very well in South Africa, when, for half a dozen years, He had been doing badly in Portsmouth. Miss Brush clearly resents Hugh, who is repeatedly referred to as the Admirable Hugh, much like an ironic version of the heroic epithet in Greek and Roman epics. Besides underbred, Miss Brush considers Hugh to be greedy. Some more notes on Hugh Whitbread. He is referred to as a public school type, who came from a family of coal merchants as a snob and a prig, that's Peter's view of him. He has his little job at court, as Clarissa referred to it, some little post at court, looked after the king's cellars, polished the imperial shoe buckles, went about in knee breeches and lace ruffles, a little job at court, that's from Peter's perspective. Later, Peter tells Sally that Hugh blacked the king's boots or counted bottles at Windsor. He is referred to at one point as dim, fat, blind, and as bowing and scraping by Peter. Lady Bruton's luncheon is very revealing for what the descriptions say about her. She talks like a man and like a general who was her famous ancestor. In fact, there's a memorable description of her in front of a portrait of her ancestor, She is frustrated as a woman. It is mentioned that if she had been a man, she would have been a general. At the luncheon, we learn that Lady Bruton's cause is to encourage emigration to Canada to try to reduce the excess labor in Britain after the war. She has asked Hugh to be there to help her write a letter to the editor, which he is apparently very good at doing. She happens to mention that Peter Walsh is back in town. Quote, Peter Walsh, all three, Lady Bruton, Hugh Whitbread, and Richard Dalloway, remembered the same thing, how passionately Peter had been in love, been rejected, gone to India, come a cropper, made a mess of things, end quote. That phrase, come a cropper, is one of the great British phrases. It means to suffer a defeat or a disaster. Today, we might refer to it as an epic fail. But once again, we have here Wolfe's technique of uniting characters in a common memory. Lady Bruton has invited Richard to her luncheon, but not Clarissa, so she asks casually, how's Clarissa? And this is followed by another of Wolfe's memorable characterization passages. 
When she said in her offhand way, how's Clarissa, husbands had difficulty in persuading their wives, and indeed, however devoted, were secretly doubtful themselves of her interest in women who often got in their husband's way, prevented them from accepting posts abroad, and had to be taken to the seaside in the middle of the session to recover from influenza. This appears to be an implication that Lady Bruton resents women like Clarissa who hold back their husband's career. And of course, we know that it was Clarissa who suffered from influenza a few years before. Lady Bruton's apparent obsession with encouraging men and women to emigrate to Canada is referred to this way. She exaggerated. She had perhaps lost her sense of proportion. Once again, we have that word proportion that is associated with Sir William Bradshaw and was previously also associated with clocks and authorities. Here, it is extended in turn to Lady Bruton, and of course, here we recall that a loss of a sense of proportion is Bradshaw's euphemism for insanity. After Hugh helps Lady Bruton write her letter to the newspaper, there is a moment at the end of the luncheon when Hugh Whitbread and Richard Dalloway depart, and Lady Bruton lies down on her sofa for her after-luncheon rest. And they went further and further from her, being attached to her by a thin thread since they had lunched with her, which would stretch and stretch, get thinner and thinner as they walked across London, as if one's friends were attached to one's body after lunching with them by a thin thread, which, as she dozed there, became hazy with the sound of bells, striking the hour or ringing to service as a single spider's thread is blotted with raindrops and burdened, sags down. So she slept. And at the moment when she falls asleep, the thread snaps a very poetic description of the imagery of social connection. Richard and Hugh walk together for a while among the shops. Hugh wants to buy some jewelry for his wife, but he is overbearing and pompous with the jewelry store clerk, insisting that he can only speak with the store's owner, who knows what jewelry Hugh's wife has. In the meantime, we see Richard wanting to express some gesture of love for Clarissa. He is reluctant to buy her jewelry, recalling that he had bought her a bracelet two or three years ago, which had not been a success. She never wore it. He looks at a few pieces in the jewelry store, but doubts his own taste in the matter, and by this point he finds Hugh's manners with the store staff unspeakably pompous, and he is weary of Hugh's company anyway, so he decides to buy her a bunch of red and white roses instead. We have several paragraphs that depict Richard's anticipation of his giving the flowers to Clarissa and telling her that he loves her. When the moment comes, though, which occurs at three o'clock in the afternoon, Richard is unable to tell her in words. He is thinking, happiness is this, as he holds out the flowers to her, which she accepts gratefully, but he cannot say the words, I love you, as much as he has anticipated doing so. But how lovely, she said, taking his flowers. She understood. She understood without his speaking. His Clarissa. She put them in vases on the mantelpiece. How lovely they looked, she said.
it is clear, despite his inability to articulate his love for her after all that anticipation, that Richard and Clarissa do have unspoken communication, and they both seem happy. And Richard's inability to tell Clarissa he loves her reveals one of the intriguing symmetries of the novel that, at first glance, seems to be so unstructured. The incident with the flowers occurs at 3 o'clock p.m., exactly the time of day that Clarissa rejected Peter Walsh's proposal 30 years before in Borton. Almost immediately, Richard has to rush off to a committee meeting. Some committee, she asked as he opened the door. Armenians, he said, or perhaps it was Albanians. This is a reference to the Christian Armenians massacred by the Muslim Turks in 1915, following some earlier slaughters in the 1890s. It was the first of the 20th century's genocides. Two-thirds of the Armenian population of Turkey was driven into exile to Soviet Armenia, Palestine, and Syria. Over the period 1915 to 1920, one million were either killed or died of starvation, and the British press and parliament debated how to protect them and other ethnic minorities. This has actually resonated in our own time as just a few years ago, the United States Congress considered and ultimately rejected a resolution condemning the Armenian genocide, something that apparently comes up periodically. Clarissa's inability to recall this event and even to distinguish between Armenians and Albanians reminds us again of Wolf's point from A Room of One's Own about masculine and feminine subjects of novels, those that deal with wars versus those that deal with events in the drawing room. <laughs> 